extremely important. Should it be emphasized? Well, we've talked about it quite a bit lately. I'm getting some feedback. I don't know whether uh, it's going out that way or not. <clears throat> I can assure you that Alden Graham is interested in the subject today, and I could assure you that he, if he knew about this, T.J. Powers is also very concerned about the doctrine of healing today. If his spleen is about to rupture and he thinks he might be about to die, he is vitally interested in this subject. I could name a great number of people on my prayer list who find the subject very, very important. But how much should it be emphasized? Is it really that important or one of those things that we talk about and one of the things mentioned in the Bible that we do? But is it that important? Now, I have noticed over the last few months that we've had the series on sovereignty, that God is lo de importante, as they would say in Spanish, in our lives. He is the important thing. And we have begun to respond to some of those series of sermons and other sermons we've had about our relationship with Christ and how he is a real being who can solve real problems. This is not an intellectual exercise. We have heard allusions to healing recently. We had, uh, I did in from Portland a month ago. Uh, Richard gave a whole sermon on it recently. Apparently, he who is inspiring sermons lately has had it on his mind to some degree because we do pray diligently before giving a sermon what we should talk about. But the reason I feel it's important to talk about it again so soon is that I see people beginning to believe in the sovereignty of God. I see people who on their own, without having been told they ought to by the ministry in any way, except through sermons such as sovereignty, or that God is our healer, giving up drugs, giving up health insurance. Heard of that just recently. Some of these people have very debilitating diseases. They have severe physical maladies, perhaps life-threatening in some cases. I don't say perhaps, I know they are life-threatening in some cases. And yet they have decided to give up drugs and doctors and leave it in the sovereign creator's hands. Now, is it important in their lives? Richard followed up his sermonette, I mean his sermon, with a sermonette at, uh, in Charlotte a couple of weeks ago, in which he quoted Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9. It just so happens that these are the middle two verses of the entire Bible. And it's interesting to read. It is better to trust in the eternal than to put confidence in man. Now, there's the dividing line in the middle of the Bible. That's the last thought for the first half. First thought of the second half, it is better to trust in the eternal than to put confidence in princes. Same thought, worded a little bit differently. Doesn't say anything specifically about healing, but it says something about trust. It says something about faith. It says something about leaving our God lives in God's hands. The point Richard was making here is that mankind does have sometimes cures. 
If your appendix, appendix is swollen and about to break, they can cut inside your body and they can whack your appendix out and that is a cure because the offending article is gone. The body isn't complete, but the offending article is gone. So that cure, in many cases, solves the immediate problem that people have. Is that the best way? The question has been raised about health insurance. Well, should we as a church organization have it on quarters? We do not have a formal worldly health plan. I have a bottle of oil in my pocket. It's fairly cheap. <laughs> I think it's all the health plan I really need. Unless I break my leg, then I'll have somebody set it. But for moving diseases in my body, I don't think I need anything else. And it's fairly cheap. Three or four dollars a bottle, is it? But now really, how cheap is it? There is a great cost in using that little cheap bottle of oil that's in my pocket. The cost is trust. The cost is faith in God. That is a heavy, heavy price. Because when we have moving diseases or life-threatening problems in our lives, it is not easy to trust in a God whom we cannot see. Because we have been taught to believe in a doctor whom we can see and who has all kinds of little pills that we can run down and buy. Or at least the pharmacist does. Let me ask you another question. Is it better then to trust man or God? Maybe you're not totally convinced on that yet, especially if walking by sight. But let's say you're starving to death, and that is not an unlikely scenario in the next few years ahead of us. You're starving to death, and a pig walks through. Is it better to eat the pig or trust in God to send the cow? The pig is there. Have you noticed that eating pork will give you energy? You can survive on pork. People have lived to great old ages eating lots and lots of pork. But is it better to not eat it? because we trust that God put that in there for our benefit. You see a Christmas tree. And it says in Jeremiah 10 that it can't hurt you, unless it falls over on you and it's a big one. But, I mean, from the standpoint of heathenism or paganism, it can't hurt you. Because those gods are dead gods. And it is a symbol of religion. And they say, well, we don't believe in all those pagan things anymore. We put Jesus in it, with emphasis on the G. Does that make it right? Is it better to do that or keep the Feast of Tabernacles? Which is better? Now, the Christmas tree is only a symbol of that pagan worship. What about, should you, have, should you not keep Christmas to go ahead and bring the tree in? I say that for this reason. What is the symbol of the doctors? A penis with snakes wrapped around it. Is that something that we want to follow? Is that a symbol that we want to look to? Did they put Christ in it? 
Does God guide the physician's hand now, even though he works under the symbol of snakes and phalaxes? Does he work through the Christmas tree now that they put Jesus' name on it? Which is better? Let's go to Matthew 14 to begin this. Because before we're through, we will see whether this is an important doctrine or whether it is not. Matthew 14 and verse 22. We all know this story where Christ was walking through a roisterous sea across the water. And the disciples were fearful, not knowing who it was out there. They knew something was out there, but men do not walk on water. So it must have been a spirit in their minds out there. And then they recognized when he spoke that it was Jesus Christ. I won't read the whole uh, account here for lack of time. But what happened? They all shrank back in fear. Peter said, can I come to you? And he actually got out of the boat and began walking on water. Now, I can barely swim in this stuff. But he was walking on it. Literally, physically. I don't know whether you believe that or not. I do. And he walked for a bit. I don't know how far, it doesn't say. And then he looked down and saw big waves. <laughs> and he heard the wind and saw, the, didn't see the wind, but he heard the wind and saw the waves. And scoop, <laughs> he sank and got a big mouthful of salt water. Now we have people who have stepped off their drugs. We have people who are canceling their medical policies on their own. They could be very, very much like Peter. That is a scary prospect, brethren, for people who have been on drugs or been on doctors for all their lives and been taught that's the thing to do. Every time you get a sniffle, run to the doctor. But here they've decided to go off something. It's scary. If they look at the wind, if they look at the waves, they will go back to their medicine. If they look to Christ, they can walk on water. Will it happen? If we knew the exact and total answer of who, what, why, where, when, and how about this, we wouldn't need faith. Faith is walking where you don't know where you are going, but you know God is doing something. I cite Hebrews 11 and Abraham. We were told at the feast, this is the hour of decision. What is a decision? If you come to a fork in the road, you have to make a decision. You're going to go one way or the other. We are coming to some decisions in our lives in which we will either agree with what is being taught in the church of the great God, and we will go along in that direction, or we will go a different direction saying that is ridiculous. And it leads to a parting of the ways. That's what decisions are about. Whether we stay together or we go apart because we do not agree. Can two walk together except they agree? This is important. And right now, this particular issue is an issue. Some say yay and some say nay. And I don't mean to create a dichotomy here. I'm not. I already see some that say, well, I don't know about that. And I see others that say, I think I'll give it up. 
the dichotomy is there. Hopefully, we will all come to see this the same way, whichever way that is. But let me think, let, let me recount that story a little bit of the uh, handwriting on the wall that John also mentioned at the feast. He told him, you're found wanting, the kingdom is divided, and you're going to die. The judgment was given. How long did Belshazzar have? He died that night. Once the handwriting was on the wall, it came quickly. Now, it's been more than a day since we were told that at the feast. But even taking a day as a year, once you come down to the time that God writes it on the wall, he makes no hollow threats. Even taking a day as a year, Belshazzar did not have an entire year. Because it was given him that day, and that night he died. So with a day as a year, it was less than a year in that sense. In other words, the judgment came pretty quickly. You have to make decisions. You have to go with them. Make up your mind what you are going to do. Now let's look at this doctrine carefully, because I don't want to make this into a you should ought to sermon. It's easy to say you should ought to do this or you should ought to do that. We've heard lots of those sermons over the years. But I want to educate us a little bit on this subject. You have to make your own decisions. We cannot make them for you. We can only encourage you in what we think we see in the Bible. And I say we think we see because you might think differently than I think. <laughs> what I see is what I know I see, and what you see is what you know I see, and sometimes the twain never meet. Hopefully we can all walk together agreed one way or another. But healing, I'll make a statement here, is the pivotal doctrine of the Bible. The pivotal doctrine of the Bible. Now that may shock you a little bit if you haven't thought that through. Maybe I haven't thought it through completely, but uh, I think there's some evidence here to indicate that. Let's go to Genesis 1.1. No, don't turn there. I won't for sake of time. But Genesis 1.1, what did you have? You had a world that was dead. A world that needed resurrected. A world that was very sick, to put it uh, even mildly. And Mr. Armstrong always went back to Genesis 1.1. In a beginning, the land was healed. That's what God did in the creation. He healed a land that was dead. There was no life. He made it whole. He made it well. He made it to produce. Now you're beginning to get an inkling of where I'm headed with this. That was a pivotal, transitional thing. From the time Satan had rebelled and award, he basically destroyed the beauty of the universe, certainly of the earth, it had to be healed. There was a breach between God and his universe. The trouble that Satan had wreaked on it. So God healed it. Once he got it all planned out. He did it in seven days, healed the entire thing, and rested a day out of that. How long was it that the healing lasted? To Genesis 3, possibly just till last Sabbath. Mr. Armstrong always felt that after the six days of creation, Satan showed up on Sunday morning. And we've lived with that ever since. But Satan brought sickness, didn't he? 
to Adam and Eve. Sick to death. Now, this was a transitional period, you see, from the time Satan had wreaked havoc on the universe until God healed it. And then God made man and woman, and Satan wreaked havoc on that. Turned them away from God. Made a great breach. Recently, we talked in a different sermon about healing the breach there in Isaiah 58 and many other scriptures. That there is a breach between man and God that occurred in the Garden of Eden that has not been healed. God's purpose is to heal that breach. So healing, then, is paramount, isn't it? Now, in a transitional time, great anger is shown by God, and great mercy is shown once the transition is made. God showed great mercy after recreating the earth by putting man here and giving man an opportunity to live forever. What a tremendous blessing for Adam and Eve and for you and me down the line. What a transition from a dead, cold universe to one with light and heat, with sun and moon and stars and human beings alive and warm and well. And then one sin, or one time sin, many commandments were broken there. The one time sin, and God said, you shall die. Now that's pretty dire. A transitional period. Now, after that, you don't read too much for a while about Adam and Eve's life. Because once the transition was made from life to death, God backed off, didn't he? Didn't deal with them too much. Until later on with Noah, another transition time. <laughs> the blessing was great on Noah, and it was dire on the rest of the world. They are still in need of resurrection, those people. So God shows pivotal, uh, shows extreme emotion at pivotal times. We'll see that now, or we'll continue to see that. Now let's go to Exodus 15. Exodus 15. A very transitional time here uh, in the history of Israel. God had, by a series of miracles, created a tremendous axial period or transition period in the lives of those Israelite slaves. They had no idea of any purpose in life or where they were headed. They were just making bricks, and that was their entire life story. But by a series of tremendous miracles, God healed that breach and brought them out of there. Let's, uh, let's see there. I, I don't want to recount all the miracles in the Song of Moses here in Exodus 15, but he goes through and shows uh, the miracle of the Red Sea and all of the things that God did to, to bring them out. Now notice verse 26 and said, If you will diligently hearken to the voice of the Eternal your God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon you which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Eternal that heals you. A covenant of healing. He had brought them out. He was beginning to heal the breach, wasn't he, that was there with Adam and Eve. And he said, I will heal you. Not just physically, although that was included, but I will heal your minds, I will heal your spirits. What a transition from what they had been to what they were being offered, if they would obey. And you know the rest of the story there. The breach had an opportunity to be healed, but man went the other direction. 
and they received great punishment during that period of time. Remember when they said, all the people are holy, I'm just as good as you, Moses? <laughs> the earth opened. What an incredible thing that the earth just simply opened. Who did the people blame it on, God? No, the next day they blamed it on Moses and Aaron. How did Moses and Aaron open the ground? With a can opener? <laughs> Think about it. Those people saw that happen. Did they think Moses and Aaron did it? They did not want to admit God in their lives or in their thinking. Let's go to Joshua 6. I want to go back to this one because it has a great deal to do with where we are and what's about to happen and what is happening and with where I'm headed with this sermon. Uh, Joshua 6 and 7. Again, I don't want to read all of this. It takes a lot of time. But here is the situation where they went into, we're just going into the promised land. Here we have, another, again, another transition time. Going into the promised land, and they were, when they went, I think this was a Jericho, wasn't it? Yeah, Jericho. Just going into the land, first, first city there, Jericho. And when it fell, they were to take nothing of it. It was all to go to God. The gold, the silver, the clothing, everything was God. The animals don't take anything. So, Israel followed that instruction. Now they had another city coming up, Ai. Well, were we supposed to go take Ai? All right, let's go take Ai. So they attack Ai, and they are run off at the hands of the Aian, or whatever you call an AIE. Thirty-six men killed as a result of that. Now, 36 isn't a big number when you start talking about 14,700 who died of the plague the next day when they accused Korah and Moses of uh, destroying Korah. I mean, of uh, Aaron and Moses destroying Korah. Not very many people. But think about it. We've got 16 people here in this room today. One, two, three, four, five men, heads of family. And if you were just to wipe out the five of us here, there would be a lot of sorrow and grief, wouldn't there? 36 families and 36 families without husbands and fathers. That's serious business. And they couldn't understand. What is going on here? <laughs> Jericho's walls laid down flat. We walked in, saved Rahab, and walked off. Everything was fine. Nobody got hurt. Now we go attack the little city of Ahai, and we get run off and 36 men killed. But it was revealed that someone had disobeyed in Jericho. Now, God could have told Moses, couldn't he, who it was. He could have easily said, because he talked to Moses. He could have said, uh, there's a fellow named Achan. Go look under his bed. And you'll find some missing things that he took from Jericho, and that's why I let AI chase you all over the countryside. God didn't choose to do it that way. Bring all the tribes of Israel, line them up here. This is a transitional period. We're going into the land. I want all of Israel lined up here. And I want you to cast lots on this tribe, this tribe, and this tribe until the lot falls on one tribe. And then on one family. And then on one head of the household, it just went down the line. So all Israel could see what was going on. God was making a point here. And he didn't want anyone to miss it, which they would have if he had just told Moses, go kill Achan. 
But this way they all came out in their Saturday finest, and they stood in line wondering, is it my tribe? Is it my family? Is it my husband? There was fear throughout all Israel that day until it was revealed. And when they, you know, when they said, no, these 11 tribes aren't, there was a collective sigh. You could probably have heard clear to the other side of Sinai. Doing anywhere near it. But boy, did fear clutch the hearts of those who were in the tribes that the lot fell on. And when it got down to Achan, he admitted what he had done. He and his family, his wife, his children, his animals, everything was killed. Now in a transitional period, God shows great emotion because he's headed somewhere and he doesn't want us to miss the point. Let's consider our sins could affect others. We had it announced today that there are people who need to be prayed for. We have that almost every week, it seems. Somebody or two or three people, whether they're in United or Worldwide or Global or somewhere in the greater church of God that we hear about, who are having physical problems. I use a couple of examples, but there are how many of us are there here in this room that wouldn't mind being healed of something? Deafness or bad eyes or bad teeth or bad feet or bad brains or something. <laughs> I think Dave's got the bad brains. He laughed the loudest on that. But it's, it's pretty important, isn't it? Second Kings, chapter 1. What about Ahaziah there? He fell through the lattice and was about to die. And he said, because you sought the gods of Ekron, don't you know there is a God in Israel? Because you did this, you will die. Sounds like cause and effect to me. Second Chronicles 16, 12 through 13. I won't turn and read that one either. We're all familiar with the story, I'm sure, of Asa, who was diseased in his feet. I don't know what it was. Gangrene, diabetes, probably didn't have diabetes back then, but something. Diseased in his feet. And he sought someone other than God. And God implies very strongly there, he died because he sought help elsewhere. Psalm 103, God says, I am your healer. I forget now what Richard was talking about in his sermon, where it was one of those situations where 103 people died as a result of not trusting in God. I don't remember now exactly what the account was. But when he said it, it struck me that Psalm 103 is the one where God says, I am your healer. And is our God a jealous God? He says so in many places. Our sins, brethren, might affect other people. Achan's sins affected 36 families very grievously. And his own family very grievously, not just him. A God... Let me, let me make another point here. Let's go to uh, Jeremiah 11 right quick. I'll turn back there. Jeremiah 11. Verse 14. <clears throat> Therefore pray not thou for this people, neither lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not hear them in the time that they cry to me for their trouble. Because of the greatness of the sins of God's people, he says, I won't 
here. He turns his face from us. Uh, let's notice Psalm, uh, Jeremiah 14, verses 11 through 12. Then said the Lord to me, Pray not for this people, for their good. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and an oblation, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. How has it been in worldwide for the last 10, 12, 14, 20 years? <laughs> it seems less and less we got God's answers. Less and less did we hear of healings. Because we were sinful. We were asleep. And God said he simply turned. <laughs> but when he passed, we passed it. He didn't even listen to us. Didn't seem like he did either, did it? That's been our experience. Psalm 34. Psalm 44. <coughs> Excuse me. And verse 22. Yea, for your sake are we killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Awake, why sleep you, O Lord? Arise, cast us not off forever. Wherefore hide you your face, and forget our affliction and our oppression. Mr. Armstrong often said the Bible was written not for the world, it was written for the church. This is us God is talking about here. Now what I'm saying is this. If we are sinning and God has turned his face from us, and then we have people who step out on faith, whether it be just for healing their physical body or in other areas of their life, expecting answers from God, because we want answers on jobs, we want answers on homes, we want answers on health, we want answers on a plethora of subjects. But what if God's head is still turned away from the church because of the terrible sins that we've committed by going to sleep and not being zealous for God, being Laodicean, not caring? And therefore he said, I can't bear to look, I'll turn my head from you, and we're not getting answers. Is it that these people could be turned out to dry because we are not repenting fast enough? They step out on faith. Are we going to shrink back in the boat? At least Peter got out of the boat. The others may have said, you can't do that, Peter, don't do that. He went over the gun one out. Some are coming out of the boat and looking to Jesus Christ for answers in all parts of their lives. Some are beginning to really study the scriptures and beginning to seek God. I think I have a responsibility here, brethren. I have a responsibility to change me as fast as I possibly can so I don't leave my brother out there in faith while I shrink back and don't show faith. I have to overcome for your sake. This is what love is all about. Real love is how Christ said he would know that we're his disciples. Do we love each other enough that we're willing to overcome, not just for our own hide, but for our brother who might be having trouble? The healing, then, is the pivotal or transitional doctrine of the Bible. Love is the greatest concept in the Bible. The greatest is love. That we have that kind of love. Let's look at Jesus Christ. I, uh, you'd have to say that was an axial or transitional period 
in the history of Israel when he came and offered a new covenant or began to prepare to offer a new covenant. Great miracles Jesus Christ did. What was his first miracle? Was it turning water into wine? No. No, we've been misled all these years. His first miracle was healing. Wine was the subject, but healing, I mean, wine was the the outward appearance, but the subject was healing. Consider. We've used wine and oil as a balm in the past, as an antiseptic. Timothy was told to take a little wine for his stomach's sake. Had to do with healing, didn't it? For a person who is emotionally upset or about to die, it says, give him strong drink in the Proverbs. That he might forget his troubles, so it can be healing emotionally if used in the correct way. I don't mean that you can live in the bottom of a bottle and expect to, uh, to have your problem solved. That, uh, that creates problems of its own. But there is a time and a place. Consider, that was the beginning of healing because water, for most of us, is not upgraded until we get the wine. You sit down at dinner and someone says, would you like water or wine? Most of us would say, the water's okay, I'll have that first, but give me some wine. Because it's a definite upgrade, isn't it? The water is the word of God, said in many places. Bread of life, it's also water. But when he upgrades from water, the word, to the reality of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and uses wine as the symbol of his blood, that's what heals us. That's what heals the breach between God and man, is washing away the sins of mankind from our first Adam, the first Adam on. Until a second Adam came on and healed, or began to heal that breach through his own sacrifice. Tremendous miracles were done by Christ, and the greatest miracle of all was that blood that was shed and his dead body laid out that we might be forgiven and have opportunity to be healed in mind, body, spirit, in every way. You think this isn't important? And he also said at that transitional time, if you will follow me, if you will enter the life, keep my commandments. But those who do not will die. We emphasized it all through the Gospels. Now let's go to Acts 2. We see there a time that God poured his spirit out. And what began to occur? A transitional period here again. From a time when Peter and James and John and all of them, when the cock crew or their servants said, uh, who is your master? They ran. They weren't even around, most of them. But a great transition occurred here when the Holy Spirit came and sat on them. Whoop! And Peter's shadow passing over people healed them. 3,000 people converted over one sermon. Incredible, if you think about it. How many sermons have been preached in this era of the Church of God, the greater Church of God, since 1927 or so? How many hundreds of thousands of sermons? I've preached myself blue in the face at times. And I didn't see anybody converted. <laughs> Certainly not 3,000. Maybe I saw it make a little effect here and there. But we didn't have that kind of thing happen. Great healing occurred. Now let's notice something else. You go page on over to Acts 5. 
Ananias and Sapphira lied. Great chastening occurred. They just fell over flat, dead, wham, path. That was it. Now, it wasn't too long after this that the great healings began to die out. And that Paul even left. Onesimus, I think it was, about to die. Didn't know whether he would be healed or not. See, during the time of transition, great God has great emotion, and he wants to make very, very serious points. Now, let's look at Worldwide Church of God in the beginnings with Mr. Armstrong. What are some of the most powerful stories in the early times of the autobiography? The healing of his wife, the healing of his children. Very early in the understanding, God began to show through healing that he was with that man, didn't he? Now, this went on and on, and we saw a lot of healings that I personally witnessed in the 50s and 60s. And then I saw them begin to die out. People said, well, God doesn't heal anymore, so let's go to the doctors. The better alternative. I think probably repentance and trust in God, true trust, would have been a better answer. But we said, oh, let's go to the doctors. What was the first doctrine they did away with when Herbert Armstrong died? One of the first God gave Herbert Armstrong, and the very first one they took away was healing and faith. Satan knew right where to strike because it is a transitional doctrine. Now, considering this is a time of transition, we should all see that by now, I think. The church has been atomized by God. What was his reaction to destroying faith and healing? I don't doubt that Christ will find love when he returns to the earth. That's the big thing people recognize, and that's why oh, we all want to love. Well, it's got to be real love, number one, but that's a different subject. But what is the one he said, will I find? That one was faith. And that was the first one they did away with. God's reaction has been very, very powerful. Citing Ezekiel 5 as a duality here, speaking of the church, before this is done, one-third will spiritually have died of the sword, one-third will have died of spiritual sickness, and one-third will be in captivity of Babylon, and only less than 10% left spiritually viable. That is a pretty strong reaction. We are a sick church today, the greater church of God. We need healed desperately, don't we? We have prayed, we have agonized over brothers and sisters and family, parents, friends, who are either sick, dead, or dying of being slain by the sword of false doctrine. We need healed. Great punishment has followed in this transitional time. Now, where do we stand today? Let's go to Psalm 60. Well, I, I, I was going to cite those to prove the point I just made. Uh, I'll quote this one. Chap chapter 60 of Psalm and verse 1. Oh God, you have cast us off. You have scattered us. You have been displeased. You've made our whole world to tremble. Verse 2. You've broken it. Heal the breaches thereof, for it shakes. Isn't the church shaken today? 
chapter 44, verse 11 says, well, I would not, we're in the neighborhood, let's go back there. Psalm 44 and verse 11. <clears throat> you have given us like sheep appointed for meat and have scattered us among the heathen. We're getting scattered back among the Methodists and the Baptists. Scattered everywhere. Now let's go to Jeremiah 8. We're going to see something different here. There's a transition. Jeremiah 8 and verse 11. For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. They said, Grace, grace. They said, Everything is going to be all right. It's going to be peaceful. When we get this transition made, everything will be fine. God will bless us. That's what they've said. And it healed the hurt slightly with some of them. But they don't know that they have not been healed. And that it is getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And it's about to die out. Notice verse 19. Behold, the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people, because of them that dwell in a far country, is not the Lord in Zion, church represented by Zion, is not her king in her, why have they provoked me to anger with their idols and with strange vanities? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. I am black. Astonishment has taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why is the health of the daughter of my people not recovered? Oh, that I had in the wilderness, verse 2 of chapter 9, a lodging place of wayfaring men, that I might leave my people and go from them. Isn't that the way you feel? Aren't we tired of this whole scenario? Wouldn't we like to get out of here and go to a place of refuge? Instead of dealing with all these negative emotions of the church falling apart, it gets tiresome. Isaiah 33. Isaiah 33. And beginning in verse 19. You shall not see a fierce people, a people of a deeper speech than you can perceive. Look upon Zion, the city of our solemnities. Your eyes shall see Jerusalem, a quiet habitation. Wait a minute, this isn't, is that the one I want? That's not the verse I wanted. Um, let's go to 35.5. I, I know I've, I'm missing something there. All right, 35, and verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands, confirm the feeble knees, say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. So there is hope. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall a lame man leap as a heart. The tongue of the dumb sing, for in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. We've looked at these scriptures as having to do with the millennium, and they do. But that's the second fulfillment in the end time. That's when Christ returns in glory. But if you'll read through all of these, you will find that speaking to the church, once we turn it around, God is going to begin to heal. When we go to a place of safety, he is going to heal our bodies, heal our minds, heal our spirits. He's going to make it one and whole in a place of safety. Zechariah 9. Let's see if I quoted the right one here. Zechariah 9. So many scriptures, so little time. Verse 12. 
turn you to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope, to the stronghold, place of safety. Even today do I declare that I will render double to you. He is going to turn it around, and we are going to be blessed. Our enemies are going to get double as well. But it's a, it's a transition time where God turns it around. Israel or the nation is next in Ezekiel 5. Now what about Ezekiel 40 through 48? See, once, once then the church is in safety and it's being turned around and our blessing returns, then he turns it loose on the world. And he vents his anger throughout the tribulation on this world. Then he begins to regather the whole world to Jerusalem. That's what Ezekiel 40 through 48 are about. The rivers of healing waters you can read about. The whole purpose. You think healing isn't important? Now let's pick up 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. And we all pretty well know the story here about spiritual gifts. And it talks about the body. Verse 9, to another faith by the same spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same spirit. Healing is a gift of God. Do you think God gives in uh, unvaluable gifts must be a very valuable thing for God to give it. I know in the times in my life when I have been threatened with death a few times, I was so thankful that there was someone to call and I could be anointed and I could know God would heal me, even as a little child. It's, it's like when a child, you know, three or four years of age, goes running out and slides down on the sidewalk and gets a big alley on his knee. Oh, cry, pitiful, whale, gonna die. But as soon as daddy or mommy pick him up and kiss it all better, it's still just as scraped as it was before. <laughs> it isn't healed, but he feels better about the whole thing. And we have to turn to God that way. What a tremendous gift it is that God gives us. Now, he doesn't mention many gifts here, but he says that the whole body... If one member of the body hurts, they all hurt. We are one body together. And when we see our brothers and all these other groups and hardly any group, it hurts. I called an old friend of mine a couple of weeks ago that I went back 25, 28 years with. And I think he knew God's truth. I think he was converted. I called him the other day and he said, well, I'm a Methodist minister now. I nearly gagged over the phone. How could he give up all of this? What he has? Thinks we're Old Covenant and he's New Covenant and we're okay. He thinks James is Old Covenant and Paul was New Covenant and they didn't get along very well. Luther, that's an old story by Luther. It's an epistle of straw, James. You know, we don't want to disobedient stuff. I'm still having trouble getting over that one. That hurts me. One of the best friends I ever had in my life. At least from my standpoint. I hope it was mutual. I think it was. I know it was at one time. Notice here when he's talking about one, body, one member of the body hurting. And God has set us all here as he pleased. He goes down and he, and he shows what he's done for the church. Verse 27, you are the body of Christ and members in particular, and God has set some in the church, apostles, prophets, teachers, 
after that miracle, and he mentioned gifts of healing. The only gift he mentions in this context. Helps, governments, diversities of tongues. He also mentions prophecy down here. It's in italics. Uh, he mentions prophecies, but uh, it does mention back in Romans 12 that prophecy is a gift as well. But there aren't many gifts list listed. Are all apostles? Have all the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Tongue isn't called a gift here. Actually, tongues, if you speak in tongues, that's healing, isn't it? Healing the languages so that you can hear. But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. So healing is very pivotal, and yet the most important concept is the whole chapter 13. Because we can have all these things without love for our brother, and what have we got? We got nothing. Or our brother is suffering because we have not overcome. It's not just me. It's not just you. It is us. Paul makes that very plain in First Corinthians 12. I'm going to Chronicles now, and I almost said it. Second Chronicles 7. We'll start wrapping this up pretty quickly. Second Chronicles 7 and verse 14. Well, let's, let's start in, in 13. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among the people, haven't we talked about that over the past months, how God has sent these things upon us? If my people, which are called by my name, a beautiful song written to this, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, they seek my face. They turned away first, didn't they? Didn't Adam and Eve turn away first? Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. When we repent, God will heal. He could have said something else, but healing was very important to this transitional process from Laodiceanism back to God. And that's the word that he uses. Jeremiah 29. Let's go back there real quickly. Isaiah, Jeremiah 29, and where was I? Verse 10. For thus says the Lord, that after seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Eternal, thoughts of peace. That's the way God wants to think of us. Really interesting if you, if you chase out seventy years through the prophecies. Because after seventy years' captivity in Babylon, they were delivered back to Jerusalem. When did Mr. Armstrong start receiving healings? 1926, 1927, 1928, right through there? Count 70 years and see how close you come. Is the time when God begins to heal his people near? 70 years from 1927 is 1997. Are we going to begin to see a turnaround? God said he wants to. But let's see if there are any conditions. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Eternal, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall you call on me, and you shall go and pray to me, and I will hearken to you. And you shall seek me and find me when? When you shall search for me with all your heart. Not half-heartedly, not lukewarmly. With all your heart, brethren, 
with all your being we have to go after God. Then he will turn his face to us and not away from us. What is the most important focus we can have right now? <laughs> Overcoming, growing, seeking God with every fiber of our being. That's what God expects of us before he begins to truly heal us. I truly believe we are at the crossroads. We are at an hour of decision. Because when you look at what has happened to the church of God over the last ten years especially, we don't have much left. If we do not take the right road, we are going to die spiritually and be lost. <laughs> I firmly believe that we are going to turn it around. Romans 11:26. All Israel shall be saved. God will put as much pressure on us as is necessary so that we turn around and seek him with all our heart. Analyze your life. How many hours are spent in front of a television as opposed to on your knees? What is seeking God with all your heart? That's just one little example. If we do not make the right decision pretty soon, it will be too late, and we will go into the tribulation and have pressure put on us like we cannot believe. I hope we don't have to go through that. I hope I don't. I hope my brothers don't. I hope I come to love you enough that I'm willing to do whatever is necessary to overcome my sins so that God will turn his face not only to me, but to you. And I hope we love each other that much. And if we don't, I hope we head that direction. Because I need heal. And you need heal. Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of us should come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as to them, but the word preached did not profit them. It was like playing a violin well. Sounded good, but it did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. We have to step out in whatever area of our lives we are having problems. Isaiah 30, get rid of your idols. Notice verse 14 here of Hebrews 4. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which can't be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but it was in all points tempted like we are yet without sin. Temptation is no excuse. He was tempted just like we are. What was the difference between his life and yours and mine? He sought God daily with all his heart. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have never been in a greater time of need in this era of God's church than we are right now. Come boldly before God, overcoming and growing. I want to quote one more back here in Hebrews 10. 
verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Can we come boldly to the throne of grace, brethren? Can we quit kneeling and whining and excusing ourselves? Can we come boldly and in faith say, God, deliver me from myself. Help me seek you with all my heart. Heal my body. Heal my mind. Heal my spirit. Great God of all the universe, Yahweh Rofika, my healer.